2: some big news coming out of some big conferences for college football. The Big Ten was the first to announce that they were postponing their fall season, hope to get some games in in the spring. The Pac-12 uh, followed as well. We're talking about all fall sports here for these schools, uh, including football. Some other big conferences haven't heard from uh, yet. So let's get the latest on how this is uh, evolving here. Joe Nocera is a columnist for Bloomberg Opinion. Uh, he joins us on the phone. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here. Um, what are you taking away here from what some of these big Power Five conferences are doing here? There seems to be a little bit of split on kind of how they're viewing it.
0: Oh, there's
3: definitely a split. Um, I mean, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten are out, at least till the spring. The SEC is definitely in. I mean, it would take, take a lot for the SEC <laughs> to not play football, <laughs> as we well know. Um, and the other two conferences, the Big 12 and the ACC, they're kind of on the fence. ACC leaning towards playing. I mean, they're heavily being influenced by Trevor Lawrence, the quarterback for Clemson, who started the We want to play hashtag. Um, and you know, it's just it, we just don't know. I mean, I think I think there's a decent likelihood that maybe two of the five conferences will try to play football. I think you could see also maybe a Nebraska or a Texas or an Oklahoma basically say, you know, hey, can we join up with you guys for a season because we want to play, too? You can see that happening. Uh, it will be difficult, but uh, it's possible. And then the whole issue would be, you know, what happens with COVID? Uh, does the pandemic affect the teams? The the, the the I mean, football is not exactly social distancing. So, um, I mean, I think that's where we
4: are right now.
1: Yeah, and certainly the Big 12 is moving forward gung-ho. Sounds like it can't even understand the decision not to play. And yet in the Big 10, there were at least five athletes who had been infected who had contracted myocarditis, Joe, a potentially dangerous heart ailment. I mean, it doesn't bode well for those who continue to play if if that's something that can be as easily contracted.
3: Right. I think that's what really scared the Big 10, Much more than the act than than COVID itself, because it is, I mean, it is true that most of these guys are young, and they'll be either asymptomatic or, you know, they'll be sick for a couple of weeks and then they'll be fine. That is that is true, but 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 COVID has potential side effects, and if you have five of your athletes who have, you know, a dangerous heart condition after having COVID. You know, you can't really just say, "Okay, no big deal." We're going to keep playing because you're basically uh, affecting this kid the rest of his life potentially. So, uh, you know, it's hard to see how these other conferences are going to say, "Well, we don't have to worry about that," um, because if they start having those 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 same problems, uh, how are they going to keep playing football?
2: Joe, where's the NCAA on this? This seems like it's, you know, an area where the NCAA should be saying, "Okay." we're playing football or we're not playing football, as opposed to leaving it up to the individual conferences?
3: Uh, The NCAA has surprisingly little um, authority over football. In 1984, there was a famous Supreme Court case in which the conferences won the right to take television rights away from the NCAA. And ever since then, the conferences have basically called their own shots in terms of football. The only thing the NCAA really does with football is, um, uh, you know, act as an enforcer when somebody's violating, you know, recruiting rules and so on. But they really have nothing to do with the college playoffs, with the bowl system, with anything like that. So it's not a surprise that the NCAA has been, uh, has not had much to say about this. It's a little surprising that they haven't at least been vocal uh, uh, about what they think should be done. Um, But the NCAA is in the same pickle that the that the the conferences are, which is that if games aren't played, television revenue isn't generated. And this whole edifice, this multi-billion dollar edifice, which is built on, you know, unpaid players generating (laughs) hundreds of millions of dollars for schools and conferences in the NCAA will crumble. And uh, one of the things I said in my column was, you know, maybe they can get away with not having fall sports, but if this has to get canceled again in spring, it will be a financial disaster for for, mm. for athletic departments.
1: And so, Joe, is there any idea or have you gamed out at all how it might work if one conference were to play and others didn't? Or if leagues joined up, you know, in some kind of new uh, tic-tac-toe of college football in order just to make it through this season so that they could hold on some of the funding? Would, would, would that be mean some colleges would get funding and some wouldn't next time?
3: Well, don't forget, all of these conferences have their own television deals. Mm. So, um, you know, if the Big Ten doesn't play, then they don't get the hundreds of millions of dollars that they would get from um, whoever uh, airs their games. You know, the SEC has its own. So, I mean, I could envision a scenario where the ACC and the SEC decide to play. So they're the only two conferences that play. And they play their games, and they get television money for that. And then they decide to have their own little mini-championship between the winner of the ACC and the winner of the SEC. I could see that as a a plausible scenario. Um, I do think, though, that... um, uh the the chances of the pandemic ultimately shutting college football down uh, is, is, is a higher likelihood, even after they like play one or two games. I think that's a higher likelihood. Um, just because it's gonna look so bad if they have their athletes out there getting sick, when everybody who's going to school, all the students are you know, socially distancing, washing their hands, wearing masks, doing all the stuff to say, stay safe and these football players are out there grabbing each other, tackling each other, hitting each other,
2: uh, the, the exact opposite of what you want
3: to prevent COVID.
2: Joe, are we still waiting on a formal decision by the SEC or the, and the ACC? And if so, when do we expect to get that?
3: Well, the SEC has been very cagey about this, and, and they're the, they're the ones that the people are watching now. So Greg Sankey, the um, commissioner of the SEC, I mean, he basically said, Uh, when when all this was happening the other day, I mean, he basically said, look, we're going to wait. We're in no hurry. If we can't start our season in September 10th, we'll start it on September 20th. If we can't start it on September 20th, we'll start it on October 4th. So his idea is he's not going to make a decision. He's going to keep everything as open as possible so that he can make whatever decision he has to make as late as possible. And I think you'll see the Big 12 and the ACC kind of follow the SEC's lead because let's face it the SEC yep. is the is the number 1 conference.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting because many of these schools probably haven't even made decisions on whether they're going to have in-class teaching or not. Not that that really has much to do with college sports, but a little bit all the same. Joan O'Sarah, thank you. You always pick the best <laughs> topics to go after when He's you write your guy. Bloomberg opinion columns. I know is is fantastic.
2: Well, I think investors are trying to get a sense here uh, of where we are in this economic recovery. Have we troughed? Is the economy coming back? What's the shape of of the recovery uh, that we can expect going forward. We welcome Carl Weinberg, Founder and Chief International Economist for High Frequency Economics. I think Carl probably has some answers for. Us. So Carl, again, I think people are trying to get a sense here um, as we deal with some additional flare-ups of the virus in certain key markets in the United States, such as California, Texas, and Florida. What does that mean for the economic recovery here? How are you kind of viewing the current state of affairs?
4: Hi. Well, good morning, Paul. Good morning, Vani. Uh, we view the state of affairs as being very – we view it very cautiously right now. Uh, we're concerned about renewed flare-ups. That's one thing. We're also concerned that the damage to the economy is greater than we are, than the market is currently pricing in and that we are currently perceiving. We don't think this economic crisis is nearly over yet. And any steps toward recovery so far are welcome, of course, but there's, we still have a very, very long way to go to get back to where we were.
1: Carl, does the market price this in at some point or is the market sort of on a separate planet at this point?
4: Well, you know, I've I've been watching you all on Bloomberg TV and, and I'm listening on the radio and this seems to be the question of the day and I'll admit that I don't have anything other than an opinion about this because we are in uncharted territory. We're looking at a bigger decline in the economy than we've ever experienced before in our lifetimes and we should expect that we're going to get unusual and unexpected outcomes from being in that place. We can't tell, you know, in the area of unknown unknowns, we can't tell exactly what they're going to be, but things are going to break, and we're still just at the very beginning days of this uh, of this downturn, you know, we're just a few months into it. So I think eventually the market will have to pay attention to the fundamentals. There will be a squeeze on the ways in which economics affects the markets. You know, the driver for profits, do profits affect the market? You know, the drivers for prices, do prices affect the markets? And of course, the financial system is going to come under stress more than we're currently probably pricing in. So yeah, Vining, eventually the piper has to be paid, but I'm not quite sure exactly
2: when that will begin. All right, Carl, you know, we're, we, the Federal Reserve has been uh, really on the front lines of dealing with uh, the economic fallout from this pandemic, inject, injecting tremendous amounts of liquidity and, and very clear messaging. Uh, Congress, on the other hand, we had that third round of stimulus, $3 Trillion, but the fourth round of stimulus, which many believe is still required, we're not seeing much movement on that. How critical is that to your the calculus of kind of how you think about the economy and and the potential recovery?
4: Gosh, Paul, Lugula Faruqi, our chief U.S. economist at High Frequency Economics, writes about this every day. It's essential. There's no way to get around the fact that if we do not... continue the stimulus at a pace at or near what we've been doing that we're going to see an immediate drop off in incomes, an immediate drop off in spending, with severe economic consequences on top of an already hit economy. Uh, We can't say that often enough or loudly enough. Now, there's a question as to whether or not at some point we're going to have to face that kind of fiscal cliff anyhow, but if it doesn't have to be faced right now and we can buy time to repair what's wrong with the economy, notably the virus itself and and buying time so we can address uh, the disease and get it under control, um, then uh, you know, there may come a day when we do have to go off that cliff. But if we can avoid it now, that would be great.
1: Carl, you're a specialist in China, obviously, as well, and we love talking to you about China. I'm curious as to where that conversation goes. It sort of took a right turn with this TikTok ByteDance dance argument. Um, you know, we obviously have been pre- prepping for something on the company side of things with China, whether it be chip companies, broadband companies or what have you. But suddenly we're in different territory now, it seems.
4: Well, I agree with you, Ronnie. This is, uh, I think of it more as an extension of a slippery slope that we engaged uh, in three years ago. Uh, when the Trump administration started exercising its options on trade policy and relations with China have now decayed to a level lower than they've been uh, since we started relationships with China in the early 1970s. I don't see a good outcome if things continue in the direction that they are going in. And frankly, I don't see good positive results coming from the direction that the Trump administration has taken us on. We have started a confrontation uh, with somebody with with an with an opponent who is equally powerful and agile as we are and we would all be much better off if everybody could embrace the things that we can accomplish together and not try to change the things that make us different from them speaking in their specifically political systems and so forth.
1: What's your base case, Carlin we're almost out of time, unfortunately, but does this all change if the, the presidency becomes a Joe Biden presidency? And if not, do we start seeing the splitting up of all Chinese-American companies or partnered companies?
4: Well, I think that we're headed toward a split up strategy right now. I can't predict what the Biden administration will do. My guess is that they will be tough on China but tough in a constructive way, looking, as Richard Nixon uh, pointed out uh, when he went to China for the first time, looking for the things we can accomplish together and accept the fact that we have fundamental differences in world views and politics, live with those differences, accept what we can change, and take advantage of the things we can do together. I think that's the winning strategy, and I'm hopeful that the uh, Biden administration will be tough, but forward-looking in its policies.
1: Carl, thank you for joining us. We will speak to you again very soon. That is Carl Weinberg, founder and chief
5: economist at High Frequency Economics. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor q Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at forum.com.
1: All right, as we know, gold has been on a little bit of a ride in the last couple of months, especially when things looked uncertain. Gold actually topped $2,000 an ounce. If we look today, we're off of those highs, but nevertheless... People obviously considering gold a store of value once again and one that they should take a second or third look at. Let's bring in somebody who knows all about gold. Frank Holmes joins us now. And, uh, Frank, it is great to have you because if anybody knows about gold, it is you. Is the peak past for gold prices right now?
6: No, Vani, not at all. If you look at the past 18 months is when the Golden Cross took place where the 50-day crossed above the 200-day. And, and gold has had this nice steady run up about $700, and it goes through a correction. And during this run, it's had um, something like six times it's moved up one standard deviation, which means for your listeners that it's this volatility that can happen by surging 6% over over three months. Uh, and three times it's gone up two standard deviations over six months, and then it corrects. It goes through these corrections. so. I think we're up two standard deviations. We're due for a correction, which would be healthy uh, in this great run, this bull market that we're seeing in bullion. And I don't think it was going away because of the unprecedented G20 printing of money. The, it's it's a collective group of finance ministers and central banks that are call, that are fighting World War III, which is the coronavirus and they're all working together, and it's a lot of money printing, and it's currency debasement, and you see that in history. Gold starts to rise in each of those mm-hmm. countries' currencies.
2: Frank Holmes, CEO and Chief Investment Officer for U.S. Global Investors uh, with us. Frank, the gold traded off at 10% yesterday. What was that? Was that a technical trade? Was that a big seller coming on the market? What do you make of that trade?
6: Yeah, I think it could be a big seller. I, I, when it comes to these types of trades, I really try to be agnostic and just look at statistics, uh, volatility. And whenever it's up two standard deviations over 60 trading days, it's a 95% probability of a drop of 6% to 10%. Okay. And uh, we got it. Yeah, and gold stocks are even more severe from their, their peaks. Uh, they'll be two times that rate.
1: Yeah, it's pretty amazing. What do you make of the performance of the gold miners recently? Obviously, Barrick is one that we've been we've been focused on. Gold is the ticker symbol, and it, it had a nice run up this year. Frank,
6: well, it's the big market cap. You know, they and Newmont are the two big uh, 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 elephants in the room, and uh, and and they have been marketing themselves as having free cash flow. What's really important is in this run now. And the first time was in March that we saw in over a decade that the 100 gold producers that we follow had a free cash flow yield. It's not happened. Mm. The S&P has always had a free cash flow yield. What does that mean? It means they can pay dividends. Yeah. Uh, they can buy back their stock. And so after the coronavirus hit in March, then the S&P fell to a negative a free cash flow yield. The gold stocks went up. So all of a sudden you started seeing the non-traditional gold or a stock buyer buying gold stocks because they have free cash flow.
1: But is the run over, I suppose, is what I'm saying? I mean, if, if you have GOLD no, up almost 50
6: No, 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 <laughs> no, no. No, because let's take a look when Greenspan left. Greenspan left, the federal balance sheet was 6% of the GDP. Now with Powell, you know, in all these crises, it's over 30%. Uh, when we go back and look at when President Obama came in, uh, the Federal Reserve, they had to spend something like $3 trillion to inflate their balance sheet. And three years later, gold went from 800 to uh, $1,900. Uh, if you looked at the growth in the balance sheet today, uh, that easily forecasts in for the next three years, gold to go to 4000 uh, and if you looked at inflation adjusted numbers, uh, it's also $3,400 uh, gold. So I, I think that um, this is a fascinating to me to watch that gold is starting to become its own it is the fourth most liquid asset class in the world but it's becoming the sort of source of an additional investment and we saw eighteen months ago new country central banks Hungary uh, Poland uh, Colombia emerging market countries buying gold as a part of their foreign currency I don't think that's going away
2: Frank how about silver what do we do there with that one
6: that's the great speculator you know um, it, it, it's it's like a warrant of on, on gold, okay. uh, and it always has a fifty percent more volatility, both up and down. Uh, gold had a big run; silver was lagging, and all of a sudden it surges. Uh, there was a whole audience of, of community of investors saying the ratio of gold to silver is too cheap, so they started buying it, and uh, and we had this big pickup. But the long term range is like sixty, fifty to sixty times silver to gold. And that's why you saw silver had this big run, but any corrections silver historically corrects more?
1: Frank, we're almost out of time, but how has the emergence of Bitcoin, Ethereum, and all these other sort of cryptocurrencies affected the trade in gold
6: well the the, the audience of people that really speculate in Ethereum and Bitcoin, they're that millennial investors and and that's a great question, Bonnie, because we have experienced in our Jets ETF. A billion dollars came in uh, during the crisis, Uh, 70 straight days, and Eric Buchanan has uh, talked about it several times, came into this ETF, uh, and predominantly we saw uh, Robinhood investors coming in uh, well uh, before the airlines took off. We're seeing it in GoAU. So these millennials used to trade Bitcoin and Ethereum, <laughs> uh, and now they're trading stocks and Now ETS. they're trading
2: stocks. Yep. Absolutely. We're seeing the, the Robin Hood traders coming into the market. Frank Holmes, CEO and CIO of U.S. Global Investors. We always appreciate uh, your uh, perspective on precious metals, gold, silver, uh, even Bitcoin a little bit. Perhaps as a store of value, some are suggesting.
1: The U.S. Postal Service is in trouble. In fact, most recently, the Treasury actually prepared a $10 billion credit line for the U.S. Postal Service. And at the time, the Treasury Secretary said, while the USPS is able to fund its operating expenses without additional borrowing at this time, we are pleased to have reached an agreement on the material terms and conditions of a loan should the need arise. It's all very fragile. Let's bring in somebody who can tell us a lot more. Satish Jindal is President, Owner, Founder of SJ Consulting. And Satish, it's great to speak with you. Is the USPS in danger of failing?
0: No, I think uh, the new CEO that has just taken over, Louis DeJoy, I have had the pleasure of working with him in the past when he was CEO of New Breed. He's a very quick study, very action-oriented, uh, and he's going to be a, having the opportunity to fix a lot of areas of shortcomings in the post office, one of them being that they are a very big partner of the Amazon and other carriers in parcel shipping. The volume in the months of April, May and June was up 49 percent, two times that of UPS and FedEx. And I fully expect him to leverage that kind of increase to get some rate increases that will help the revenue increase at the post office.
2: So Satish, there's been some concern, I guess, Postmaster DeJoy uh, had a new organization chart kind of uh, uh, implemented recently. A lot of executives were displaced, including uh, two of the top executives overseeing day-to-day operations. And I know some Democrats have suggested that maybe that's deliberate sabotage to disrupt mail service on the eve of the election. Uh, And with an election, that's going to really depend upon mail-in ballots. Is that a valid concern in your mind? Not at all. I know some of the people who are still there. Dave Williams, he's
0: in charge of the operations. Jackie Straco in charge of some of the sales and marketing. They are very seasoned, very skilled, experienced people. And I do not see this being in any way compromising the quality of service, the speed of it. And in fact, he's streamlining it to make it happen quicker and better. And we even track on-time performance of first class and priority mail. And the month of July shows no decline over the prior months. so uh, I do not anticipate anything to compromise the quality of postal service.
1: Satish, though, I mean, one of the one of the things that the USPS had over other services was that last mile, right? Which was also its Achilles' heel, because the last mile is the most expensive, it's it's the most annoying, it's the most difficult, and you know, you are promising that you will you know have that package at that door on a certain day so you just have to be there if other services you know even uber is you know fantastic on on gps and location and that kind of thing if those services start doing last mile does that jeopardize usps
0: no way no company has ability to compete in terms of the cost of last mile delivery and the Presence that they have, they go to every address every day. No company has that capability. And you'd mention about Uber and Lyft, they are nowhere close to even UPS and FedEx, and they can't do it as cost effectively as the post office does. And that's validated by UPS has a service called SurePost, which is where they handle most of the last mile B2C packages, and they are delivered by post office for UPS.
2: All right, so Sadish, as we take a look at the U.S. Postal Service as an entity here, talk to us about the financial condition that it's in right now and and, and kind of what needs to be done in terms of investment going forward. The area where I think post
0: office can rapidly improve its financial conditions from an operating point of view, keep in mind what the public sees are financials that include the retirement uh, payments that they have to make we take that out because they are asked to do something that no private company does. If you look at it on an operating basis, they have a huge opportunity to leverage their of services for increases. A simple example being that during the peak, the volumes increased by 30, 40, 50 percent. UPS has already announced they're going to charge an extra dollar for the delivery of those packages that actually are being done by the post office. The post office should be getting that extra dollar and they should be putting a surcharge for the peak, and it will be hundreds and millions of dollars for them.
1: So what kind of surcharge should customers expect to see? Because we've really sort of had it good, and people complain every time the price of a stamp goes up, Satish, but, you know, honestly, it's not that much to send something via USPS.
0: Thank you for saying that. <laughs> First-class mail-in perspective. We have done extensive study. When you look around the world and look at other developing countries, take example of Germany, the size of Germany is one-fifth or less than that of USA, without including Alaska and Hawaii. And yet, their first-class mail is about 30 40% more expensive than ours. And I would tell you that for an average housewife or a household, a increase of postage by 10, 15 cents will hardly be felt by them. It is the big mailers like Capital One. You may see how many mails, packages they send you every week but they will have to pay more and let them pay more because they will ship less and that will be better for you and me and the post
2: office. How is the U.S. post office going to do during this election season? Again, it uh, looks like there's going to be a much, much higher than average mail-in vote. Uh, how do you think the post office will perform? Can it stay out of the politics of it?
0: I do not see any challenges for them to not be able to handle that volume. Keep in mind that the first class mail especially the ones that are in simple envelope, they go through a sortation system that moves so fast that if you got your finger in it, it will cut your finger off. And that speed of handling first-class mail is so well set up that they can have a 30 40% increase in those mailers that they're going to get, 100% increase in the votes that come in through that, and maybe it'll take a day more, but that still is not something to be concerned about.
2: Satish Jindal, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate getting your thoughts on the Postal Service front and center here. It's getting a little bit politicized, but it'll certainly be an important player in this upcoming election. Satish Jindal, President, SJ Consulting based in Pennsylvania, joining us here.
1: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn.
2: And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.
5: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha,